Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Jennifer Egan, the author of Manhattan Beach and five previous books of fiction. A visit from the Goon Squad won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, Granta, McSweeney's, and The New York Times Magazine. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. And congratulations on the new book. Thanks so much. How's uh, how's everything going? How's the new book? How's uh, walking around, living your life? Uh, it's good. I mean, I'm excited because Manhattan Beach was chosen as a citywide read for New York, which is really thrilling to me because New York is my adopted home and uh, really kind of directly inspired the book. Uh, so I feel excited to uh, to have so many New Yorkers reading it. That is uh, so great. I have never written a book about a city where the city later said thank you. Um, we're all going to read it now. Like, that's just kind of lovely. It is really, it it is a dreamy happiness, I have to say. Oh, well, that's very excited, exciting even. Um, And I think dreamy happiness should be the tone that we take with all these letters. We're going to provide dreamy happiness, hopefully. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be immediately available to all of the people asking questions, but that's going to be the goal, for me at least. That sounds good to me. Awesome. Well, our first uh, our first letter is not starting in a position of dreamy happiness. Our first letter is starting in a position of alienation and profound distress at work. So we're going to get started with a tricky one. The subject line is just what to expect from bosses. Dear Prudence, I'm having some problems at work. Actually, a lot of problems. I work with only two other women, one of whom is my superior. And every day I walk in dreading what I will apparently fail at today and leave feeling awful. I go home and cry at least three times a week. I feel as though they both regularly throw me under the bus in order to make themselves look better to the boss. They insult me. They call me incompetent, have gone digging through my trash. It just never stops. I would approach the boss about their actions, but he loves them too. He even officiated one of their weddings earlier this year. This is my first full-time job after college, and I have no idea how to approach this when it seems like the deck is stacked against me. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, this one... Put me in mind of a couple of my first post-college jobs, and I did not enjoy revisiting that experience. Yeah, I, I also felt that. I mean, I yes, I certainly know the feeling of having had an abusive boss. And that's why, in a way, my first reaction to this was that I think there are lots of things to be done here. But it seems to me that one of them is just to quietly begin looking for another job. Right. If for no other reason than to have a bit of an escape valve throughout the week, right? Just to have a sense of I'm not trapped here. Exactly. I mean, I just it may just be that there are too many factors at play here to unlock into a more uh, neutral and comfortable situation. Although that said, I, I did think that, you know, one one thing to do would be to start documenting these various uh, encroachments and and um, and you know ma- incidents of maltreatment in a very orderly way. You know, date, uh, incident, 
uh, perpetrator, etc. And then having done that for a couple of weeks to consider in a very calm and rational way, having having uh, guaranteed confidentiality to actually go to the boss and present this material. Right. I think it's always going to be easier to say uh, something like, you know, on the third she went through my trash um, on the fourth. Someone called me an idiot. Uh, these things make it difficult for me to get my work done on time um, to have those specific things that you can point to um, as opposed to I feel this way all of the time. Um, I cry regularly, which, again, is meaningful and important. But given that you're already anxious that the boss in question is just going to side with his friends automatically, um, it can sometimes be really helpful to point out specific things that when he hears them uh, will hopefully be jarring and surprising. And if he has a very different impression of these other two employees, the, that what this person has to do is somehow overcome that preconception. And so my fear is that without that documentation and the very calm and sane presentation, one danger is that the boss just thinks this person is overwrought. I actually can't tell if this is a, a man or a woman, but this person they is did overwrought. Say- they work with two other women, so I, oh, I two think, other women. Okay, yeah. so she's so even worse. Then then there's a gender stereotype that may come into play. She's overwrought. She's imagining things. She's paranoid. I mean, who knows? Right. People will go a long way to maintain what they think is what the, the impressions they already have of other people, including questioning someone who throws a different light onto those impressions. So again, the more calm and sort of um, low key and 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 kind of documented the better I think yeah well you just said a word there I actually yeah we uh, that is absolutely true and and I think you're right too which is hard because one of the things that can be really difficult is if you are already this level of like feeling distressed and 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 on the verge of tears about it it can be a lot harder to say okay I have to get through this meeting without crying. Um, because as soon as that becomes your goal, all your face wants to do is produce tears. Um, so I think when you do have this meeting to kind of prepare yourself as best you can beforehand, um, you know, get your crying out earlier in the day if you can. Obviously, you can't perfectly control your body and make it not cry. Um, but as much as you can rehearse it, maybe practice on a couple of friends beforehand until you can kind of get through. Here are the main issues as I see them. Um, here are the incidents that I have documented until you can get through that while maintaining your composure. That's going to go a long way towards hopefully helping you get heard. That is so true. I mean, I actually think rehearsing and practicing with friends is such a good idea. I mean, speaking as someone who had very serious performance anxiety for many, many years It's, you know, anything that can be done to kind of shore up one's performance, because it is a performance. This is a really scary thing to go behind the backs of two people, you know, who seem to really not have her best interest in mind, to try to appeal to a person who seems to really like and trust those people. And this is someone right out of college. I mean, it's a lot to ask. I would be nervous to do it now as a 55-year-old woman. So the more she can rehearse, the better. Yeah. And, and it is hard. I, I it's it's been a while since this happened, but I did um, once cry when I was in a meeting with my boss. And one of the things that was just so difficult was once it started, I just felt so embarrassed um, that I could not stop crying. Um, and I wanted so badly to just like hit the reset button and respawn myself and walk in again um, as a new person. Um, and it's it's really difficult. It's really difficult when you're crying at work um, and you're aware that other people feel uncomfortable. Um, and that's a hard position to be in. So 
I, I, feel I think you. one other um, one other thing that's really good about the documentation is that it has a sort of legal tinge to it, which is not a bad thing to do. That's just a, a subtle cord to strike in this conversation, because I'm not sure what sort of recourse an employee has who goes to her boss with, you know, documentation of abuses by other employees. But there may be some recourse and simply taking a more sort of calm metric approach to all of it, I think, raises the specter of a person who's thinking about other steps they might take, which is which is really not a bad thing and, and actually quite appropriate if, if this really is an abusive situation. Right, right. And, you know, unfortunately, there's often so many ways in which it's perfectly legal for, for bosses to mistreat employees. But I think you're right. Just even to give the indication of this has reached a level where it is not possible for me to kind of have a a measured conversation with these coworkers slash supervisors, and they modify their behavior. Um, this is a pattern um, that's really serious and that's going unchecked. Um, and in order for me to be able to do my job, I need your help in communicating to them um, how they can uh, speak to other employees to get different um, results uh, and how they can't. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I think prepare yourself for that as best you can. Also look for work elsewhere. I felt that implicit in this letter was the sort of um, uh, because it's my first job out of college. uh, She maybe feels reluctant to look for another job because she's afraid it will look bad not to have been there a longer time. And then maybe also an implicit fear of is this just how workplaces are a lot of the time? Like, should I just resign myself to being treated like this at a lot of jobs? Um, And I would just say, you know, generally speaking, it's not great to have like multiple, multiple, very brief um, uh, 10 years at different companies um, over the course of your career, it is not going to hold you back over a lifetime to have spent one job where you were only there for six months. Um, and the other one is, no, it is not It is not okay or, or something that you can just expect from most workplaces that you will be treated like this. No, I mean, going through the trash is is pretty serious. I mean, that's really strange. I mean, and and I would also be curious to know how she exactly knows that. Um, I wonder if they just cop to it, if they're like, yeah, I went through your trash. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, again, that just seems really um, clearly they are very threatened by her. So Mm -hmm. I guess another thing to to consider would be that she may have more more power or more presence than she's giving herself credit for, because if she were a non-entity, they would not be doing these things. There's there's something about her that has them nervous. Maybe she's really capable uh, has a huge amount to offer, and they feel insecure for their own reasons. But it's another reason to feel emboldened with with documentation and and hopefully in the right state of mind to to walk in and very calmly present the evidence. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do think, you know, take the record, write that down. That does not mean, by the way, that you have to wait two weeks for them to do more stuff. I mean, to the best of your recollection, go and write down the things that have already happened. Ask to set up a meeting with him. Prepare as much as you can with the other people in your life. Um, In the meantime, try to stay as neutral as possible towards them and look for work elsewhere. Um, And hopefully his response is open. Um, I, 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 I do worry that even if he gives you the benefit of the doubt, hears you out, does his best to help you. If he's not seeing them on a daily basis and how they treat you, that even if he were to say to them, you guys need to stop doing the following things, that they will find other ways to take it out on you. Um, So even if he's kind of in your corner, it is possible that short of firing them both, 
um, he's not able to make a huge difference in how you get treated on a daily basis at work. And if that happens, then I think, again, your best bet is to um, work elsewhere, hopefully at a slightly larger company where at least, you know, it's really hard when it's the only other two people um, in the office. Yeah, it might be interesting to find out. I don't know if she can find out who held her position before she did. But talking to someone else in the who's worked in the office and knows the personalities would be interesting. For one thing, she may not be the first person to have been driven out or driven a little wild by this kind of behavior. And secondly, the, her predecessor, if that wasn't the case, might have advice on how to handle these people. I don't know if that would be possible to find out. But if it were, that would be very, very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope so. Just anything that would sort of uh, help you feel at least like other people can, you know, recognize the absurdity of the position that you're in right now. Because it is it's clearly not like I'm I'm having a really hard time accomplishing my tasks and my bosses are really on me about that. Right. It's like the level of insults and going through trash, which just there's no level of if someone's so incompetent that you had to do those things, they should be fired. Uh, that would not be an appropriate solution to someone doing a very bad job. So it's clearly not just like, oh, you have a lot to learn and this is the best way for them to teach you. Exactly. And there and going, you know, doing it, that sounds kind of sneaky as well, which is is never um, I don't know, that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in the people who are doing it. Uh, it, it always seems to me that if you have to be sneaky, there's some reason that you're not comfortable just um, behaving in a more open way. Yeah. Yeah. And just like either if someone's unable to fulfill the tasks of their job, you say, like, here's what's not working and how I think we need to fix it. Or if they're just truly incapable of doing it, then you say we have to let you go. Just telling someone you're incompetent, stay um, is a recipe for things not improving. Like they're not trying to be good managers by any lens that you put this through. Yeah. I mean, they may they may be unhappy with her performance. Um, calling her incompetence suggests that. But mm-hmm. in that case, then a different kind of conversation needs to happen. And maybe the boss could facilitate that. Again, it's hard to know, you know, how large the office is or what the options are. But, um, you know, name calling uh, per se is is not <laughs> is not a good management style. So, again, it just seems like there is something clearly has to change structurally in the situation. Yeah. Yeah. So good luck. I think the likeliest outcome, even if you have that conversation with um, the the head boss, that you will probably be be looking for another job. And I hope that your next job is better than this one. And, and good luck. Keep us posted. Would you uh, read us the next letter? Sure. The subject line is, I am never going to be a mother. Dear Prudence, I recently suffered my fifth mis- miscarriage in three years. After the emotional and physical toll it's taken on me, my husband wants to stop trying. I don't blame him. But because he has two children from his first marriage, I also feel very alone, facing the reality that I probably won't become a parent. It's a grief that tears me up inside. It hurts so badly that I'll think I'll, I think I'll feel this way for the rest of my life. I know it's unfair. I know it is. But I want to tell my husband it's easy for him to give up on having children. He has two wonderful kids already. And because I'd keep trying, I feel as if it's not a decision we've made together. I don't want to be so consumed by this that I burn my marriage to the ground. But I don't know how to stop feeling so devastated or how to articulate my pain to him, especially when it feels selfish. Oh, man, this one killed me. Oh, so painful. Gosh, I mean, I had lots of thoughts in response to this. Um, 
I mean, it, it seems to me that there are two different issues on the table here. One is communication with and relationship to husband. Mm-hmm. And the other is the issue of wanting a child. Um, and so I kind of felt, at least from my point of view, it made sense to separate the, those two issues and deal with them as two separate problems. Um, and to me, it just se- this this seems like a clear case where some kind of couples counseling would be incredibly helpful right. because, you know, her husband has, according as she describes it, has made a decision for her based on how he thinks having these, mis- you know, struggling with, with reproduction is affecting her. But that's not really fair because <laughs> this is a decision she has to make, too. Right. Um, and my guess is that they are having a difficult time communicating about this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot in here about what it means to have children, children that you can consider your own, children that you don't, the difference between biological children and other ways of having children. Um, And I don't want to make it sound like the letter writer has to open up their mind to something else because what they're dealing with right now is the loss of, you know, carrying a biological child or the potential um, reality that that may never happen. And that's real and significant, even if later in life she gets to a different place, um, either about her stepchildren or about other ways of starting a family with her husband, um, because that's real right now. Yeah, I mean, I feel that she there's so she is directing a lot of blame at herself. She's worried about burning her marriage to the ground. But her husband has made a decision for her based on how he thinks she feels and, you know, again, I just I feel that it doesn't seem like this is quite fair. And yet she feels responsibility also for possibly imperiling the relationship. So it just feels to me like a lot of guilt and a lot of pain, which is mixed in and scrambled with general, um, you know, agony over this question of having children. But it, it feels to me like the first thing that needs to be sorted out is communication with her husband. Because I wonder if he understood how desperately she wants to have children and how urgently important it is to her, whether there might be other things they can try. I mean, even if it just means taking a little break and starting again. Right. Or, I mean, I, I, it's you know, she we're not it's not clear what sort of reproductive things have been tried or anything like that. But you know, there are just a lot of ways to go with this. Right. But communication is so important. And I think that's such a good point because it's like right now the thing that she's facing is either stop forever or what they've been doing, which is, you know, five miscarriages in three years. That's that's a lot. Um, and so those both feel like two really big, painful either or options. Um, and I think, um, I, again, that's not to say that they might not ultimately um, – still decide that they will not try again. But I think rather than saying, we're done, we're never going to try again, that's off the table, um, to say right now, as as a couple, you two need to take a break from trying in order to deal with the tremendous, tremendous pain that you're in. Um, because yes. you deserve support in this. Like Right now you say, you feel like your job is to stop being devastated. And I just don't think you can ask that of yourself. No. And, and and what she says about her husband being in a different position is really quite true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, again, I just it feels like there are many things that 
they are having trouble saying to each other or at least that she is having trouble saying to him. Right. And I think it's really important that he he hear those things because she's worried about burning the marriage to the ground out of uh, it sounds to me like the fear is I'm going to exhaust my husband or run through his goodwill or just be such a handful that he can't deal with me. Right. But I actually think that the real danger is is the opposite. Hmm. By by not telling him how she feels and how important this is to her and not making sure that he really understands how high the stakes are and the gulf that she feels from him, I think the danger is that later she blames him for all this. So he needs to really understand that, that you know, this is really – these are this is – it doesn't get any more serious than this. Right. And they need to be in this together or down the road they may find that things become very difficult. Right. And I think that's a really good point because I, I don't want the letter writer to feel like you two have to put the brakes on trying to have biological children right now so that you can go to therapy and fix everything um, and get on the exact same page. I, I cannot at all guarantee that couples counseling will mean that you two will end up agreeing. It may very well be um, that you guys have to come to a very real and painful impasse where he just says, I'm not willing to go through that again. And you say, I am. Um, and you will have to deal with that as a as a couple. But you don't have to solve that right now. Right now, what you need is help with your devastation and help articulating your pain to him when you want to filter it because you're worried that it's selfish. Exactly. And it also seems to me that the, the letter writer's husband is concerned about her. Mm-hmm. But she, it sounds to me, would like to keep going with trying to have a child. Yeah. So again... If if his concern is for her, then he needs to understand that this is actually what she wants. So I'm not convinced that there needs to be a break at all. I just think some kind of facilitated communication would help so much. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know to what degree. It may be that he is trying to edit what he's saying is this is taking a toll on me to to be with you in that or if he's genuinely – thinking that he's looking out for her best interests and is not fully clear on where she's at. Um, but yeah, I, I, either way, I think that going to therapy together, um, a- agreeing to pause for at least a couple of months as you work through this together, maybe finding a support group for other women who have had miscarriages and are struggling with the question of whether or not they're going to have biological children so that you can feel less alone. Um that might be really helpful. And that doesn't mean that you're going to either, you know, get pregnant and carry a child to term this year or that you're going to become perfectly reconciled to not doing that. Um, But that this is, it it makes sense that you're devastated. This sounds devastating. Um, And when you're devastated, you need help and support. Um, You should not um, beat yourself up for having desires or feeling pain or anguish or try to keep it all to yourself so that you can make the people around you more more happy. And that's not to diminish. I'm sure it's been hard on your husband, too, but this has been happening in your body. Exactly. And and the emotional and physical toll of reproductive medicine is really intense. Um, and so that is probably not helping with with her state of mind. Uh, I think I think the support group idea is really excellent. I wrote a, an article years ago for the New York Times magazine about single mothers by choice. Mm-hmm. And so, in, in you know, it, there was some kind of assisted reproduction in all of these cases. And so, of course, there were issues of infertility and difficulty and 
you know, varying degrees of, of challenges. And it's my sense was that talking to other women who had been through it was so incredibly helpful, partly, you know, to begin the process of also asking the question of whether a family has to happen in exactly that way, you know, whether other kinds of options might be, you know, appealing and, and you know, satisfying, um, you know. And, and so it just it feels like it, camaraderie and, and some sort of, um, you know, sisterhood here would really be helpful. Yeah, especially, too, because I think you would not feel that same guilt about um, – bringing someone else down, which is not what I think you are doing to your husband, but it's what I think you worry that you are doing. Um, talking to other women who have experienced the same thing, you will not feel like there will just be a even if it's not immediately comfortable, if you don't immediately like mesh with all of them beautifully, there will at least be the sense of, I don't have to explain this to her, or she doesn't have to witness this from the outside. Um, she's been there too. And to have that as a sort of basis for sharing your experience um, and your fears and your feelings I think would I think would be really helpful to you. Absolutely. And just hearing other stories, other ways that this story can go, because, you know, it can it can all kinds of things can happen, as as we know, Um, you know, and maybe maybe some of those things will happen for this person and maybe they need to try reproductive medicine a little bit more before that point is reached. Right. And of course, I don't know if they have tried that or if they can afford that. So I I just want to add that caveat of that may or may not be immediately possible. But um, if it it is not something that you've tried, if it is something you would be able to access, I hope you can give yourself permission to talk about and contemplate that. Absolutely. And that's just big. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing here that you can address is just the part where you feel very alone. Um, I don't know what it's going to look like for you if you and your husband are ever able to come on the same page about um, what is or isn't worth it. Um, I don't know if you will ever conceive and, and carry a biological child, um, but I, I do know that you can feel less alone. Absolutely. And that, uh, you know, a relationship that's strong and loving will come through this. Yeah. I really believe that. And I, I just have I'm such a huge believer in the power of communication. I think so often people just don't understand what the other is thinking. And a little a sort of um, a little tangle of grievances can develop um, in which, you know, everyone feels guilty. Everyone feels bad. You know, her husband may think that he's really doing the best thing for her because they're having trouble expressing to each other what they want. So I just think remarkable things can happen in that context. Yeah. All right. Um, The next letter, uh, you know, just more more family and medical intersections today. That seems to be a bit of a theme. Um, That's just kind of in the air. And the subject line of this one is not a doctor. Dear Prudence, both my parents are medical doctors, as are my three sisters. I'm the odd one out going for a Ph.D. The family joke when we all get introduced is that I'm the one who's, quote, not a real doctor. I'm a published author, happily married, and have a beautiful little girl, but I immediately become the anxious, ashamed 12-year-old who never quite measured up to her sisters. I've tried to deflect this joke. I've chided my sisters for making it, and I flat out told them to please retire that. It's gotten old. They may let up for a while, but it always comes up again the next time we get together. Last time, I snapped when my older sister introduced me to an acquaintance with that joke, and everyone twittered. I can blame the wine or my jet lag, but in the heat of the moment, 
All I wanted to wipe, all I wanted to do was wipe that smile off my sister's face. I turned around and introduced myself as the one who's still married. All my sisters are divorced, two of them twice, and all had messy, miserable ends to their marriages. I think if I had slapped my sister, it would have hurt less. I immediately felt ashamed and went outside to clear my head. I was followed by my two other sisters. They wanted to know how I could say something so hurtful, and I said that this was exactly what they'd been doing to me for years. Their response was, well, it's true, so why does it upset you? I flew home early. As far as my parents are concerned, I made a scene and embarrassed myself. My sisters have done nothing wrong, and I need to be less sensitive. My husband supports me and says my sisters are jealous of my, quote, getting a happy life while they make everyone miserable around them. I need to know what to do here. One sister has left horrible messages demanding an apology. Another diagnosed me as needing mental help. And the last one hasn't said a word. I don't want to cut my family out of my life, but I'm 10 years too tired to go back to dealing with all the little paper cuts they like to inflict on me. Oh, my gosh. Families are so complicated, aren't they? Oh, I just, like, I felt this one deep in my bones. There's just so, I mean, yeah, there's 10 years of wait in that one moment. Um, I know. I had a hard time with this one. I really did. Yeah. I I mean, I felt like, again, I had this feeling of wanting to sort of detangle it and look at it it, as, as several different problems because it feels like, I mean, you know, there's the buildup to what happened. Then there's the big mess in which everyone behaved badly. Mm-hmm. And now there's this terrible aftermath where everyone's completely at odds. And in a certain way, they all have to be fixed. Um, I mean, I, you know, I guess I really am a believer in therapy because there's a, if there were a way to just get everyone into a room for family therapy, that would be fantastic. But it doesn't sound like that's going to happen. Um and I guess the other thing I, I always feel strongly in, in situations like this, kind of as with the um, the woman who is tr- having trouble at work, it seems like what's really missing from the equation is, a, is calm, clear-headedness. And, of course, that's the problem with families. It can be so hard to achieve that. Like, emotions simply take over. And before you know it, everyone is saying and doing things that they, you know, regret – But that's why, in a way, the first thing I thought was, I wonder whether the letter writer could start by writing a letter to her sisters, Hmm. which which would have to begin with an apology, because, you know, what she said was really out of line and, and very hurtful. And clearly she feels very badly about it. So that would be an honest recognition of that fact. But then, again, in a very clear headed way to sort of having apologized and without casting blame, and this would be the hard thing, mm-hmm. um, to to talk about the what led up to that um, unfortunate comment and the the hurtfulness about not being a doctor. I mean, it's very clear that there's a lot of jealousy among these siblings. Everyone right. seems to think that all of the others have things that they don't. Yeah, and. and- there's so many different ways to read this. I think one of the things I didn't get a really clear sense on, um, often when I'll get letters like this, it'll come with this sort of like, this is just one of many examples of ways that, that I, I've been constantly undercut by my family members. And I don't want to um, preclude that as a possibility here. But um, it did feel telling uh, that the letter writer said, I, I go back to being an anxious and ashamed 12-year-old who never quite measured up to her sisters. And I, I'm just curious, you know, letter writer, it may be helpful to reflect, like, um, 
Is that because it was made very clear to me, either directly or indirectly by my parents, that I was not as good? Um, did some of that come from myself and an anxiety that I can um, kind of speak to differently as an adult? Um, the, 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 the not a real doctor thing is absolutely frustrating and irritating. I, I would not like it myself. You had every right to be bothered by it. But those little paper cuts that you mentioned, I'm just... I, I don't want to say maybe you are too sensitive. That's not what I mean. It's it's okay to have been hurt by those things, and it's okay not to like it, um, and it's okay to be frustrated that they weren't listening to you. Um, but I just think it might be useful to kind of think through, um, are they otherwise in other ways supportive? Have they ever been supportive of you? Um, is this a dynamic that your parents kind of created and you guys competed for resources? Is there some anger towards your your parents there? Um that just only you will be able to answer, but will be worth thinking through before you kind of reestablish any sort of contact. Um, because this is just clearly this is um, ten at least 10 years worth, um, probably 20 um, of a lot of stuff that has gone maybe unsaid or unquestioned. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, because, you know, the letter writer is incredibly accomplished. I mean, has a Ph.D.? Oh, my gosh. I wouldn't mind one of those. Right. Um, you know, a published author and not to mention having a very happy and stable personal life. Right. So, you know, on some level, I mean, I just I guess the question is, who says being a medical doctor is better? Where did that idea come from? I have to think it's the parents. Right. Yeah. And I'm just curious, too, like it, the letter writer says that their husband had said that your sisters make everyone miserable around them. So, may, I mean, maybe that's part of the clue there. Either your husband is um, kind of mischaracterizing them because he's just feeling protective of you or um, this is just the tip of the iceberg. So, again, the question there would be if you feel genuinely like um, this is just the sort of surface level thing, they are constantly saying awful things to me, never support me, are never happy for me, needle at everything I do, then there's sort of the question of how much reconciliation do you want here? Um, but if that's not an accurate characterization, if you don't think of your sisters as generally miserable people, um, if if part of what you just want is to be able to reestablish a connection where you don't feel like they're making this one single dig, um, then that would be a different sort of conversation. So that's, again, a question only you can answer. Um, but yeah, if, if you feel like they're miserable and they want to make other people miserable and that's all they do to you, I, I, I do still think that the apology will be necessary and crucial just for your own um, peace of mind. But um, that would certainly answer the question of, you know, what do we do after that apology, which would be maybe, you know, take a step back from from those family interactions. I mean, one thing I feel is that, you know, one of the nice things about getting older is that it becomes much easier to sort of not react as strongly to, to some sort of family irritants and to feel that one understands where they come from. It's mm. always the past. Uh, and and to sort of, you know, take it on some level for the greater good if there is one. In other words, I mean, this is really to your point, too. How much does it matter to you to spend time with your family? Is it worth it? What do you get out of it? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is that it really does add value to your life and that it, it, it is important to feel that togetherness and that wholeness, part of that is sucking it up a little, you know? And, and, and also, I, also, I often find that if, you know, compassion and empathy are so helpful in, in, in kind of... Um, 
subverting what might otherwise be a kind of insult. In other words, if if her sisters are saying these things in part because they're jealous, because their personal lives are kind of a mess and hers is not, to sort of think about that with compassion and say maybe what they feel is that all they have are these MDs. And so, okay, you know what? They need to they need to say that it's not going to it's not going to kill me. Right. And I think too again, not to say that it's totally on you um, for the 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 fact that they kept making the joke over the years because you had certainly made it clear that you didn't like it. So I, I don't want in any way to suggest um, that uh, they didn't have that information from you. Um, but I also know that sometimes um, if, if they feel like you're just doing a kind of knock it off routine, they might not have been aware of how painful it was for you. So as as you reflect, you know, you say that you, you've, you've deflected it, you've kind of chided them and that the strongest thing you had said is, hey, it's getting old, um, which did not actually communicate to them. Hey, when you guys say that, I feel like I'm 12 years old and I feel like I can't live up to you. Um, and it really, really hurts me deeply. Knowing that, would you stop? Um because I think had you had that conversation and they had persisted in doing it, you would at least have enough information to say, you know what, I'm going to actually walk away from this conversation because you know how badly this hurts me. It's very easy not to make this joke and you've decided to do it anyways. Um, and that would have been, I think, um, a way to be really honest about where you were coming from, but that would not have resulted in this situation. And I don't say that so that you can further beat yourself up, but it can just be a reminder. Sometimes things that we think are really clear to everyone else around us aren't always that way. Um, Because I can certainly see a family where that's the kind of joke that everyone feels kind of fun about. They may have felt like you're doing so great with your PhD that this was not a jibe at like an obvious discrepancy in your relative levels of success. Um, And I could be way off base there. I just want to go out and say that. Like, I could be totally wrong about that. But I just want to throw that as a possibility. But one thing that I did notice as I was rereading this is um, you haven't apologized, letter writer. Um, There wasn't even kind of in the moment, oh, I'm sorry, but I got to go. You know, uh, and so you need to. Even Even if everything is like kind of worst case scenario, they have been massively jerkish about this. Um, and you decide that you don't actually want to have much of a relationship with them going forward, um, you do need to apologize for that because you know that those divorces um, have been messy and miserable um, and that you said it because you knew it would hurt worse than a slap. And so that's just something you have to apologize for in an unqualified fashion. Um, you, you need to own it. Um, even if they're angry with you, even if you feel justified in all of your resentments, the the first thing you need to do is just... And I think it needs to be individually to each of them um, without trying to go into this other stuff yet of just, I need to apologize to you. What I said was totally uncalled for. It was deeply cruel. Um, I used some of the most painful aspects of your personal life against you, and there was no excuse for it. And I'm so sorry. I totally agree. I mean, it's amazing how hard it is for some people to apologize and how hard it really can be for anyone to mm-hmm. apologize. But the power of an apology is is vastly underestimated. I really feel that. I mean, it is it can be such a tonic and it, it you know, it can open the way for a more honest interaction. Um, and I agree. I think I think you're right. I like your idea better to have the apology be separate from all of this, because what we're really talking about is is taking the high road. 
And if a conversation becomes possible about how to avoid hurt feelings, it will only be because the the you know everyone has has sort of dealt with and forgiven the most hurtful thing of all that's been said which is what the letter writer said right and that's part of what's really hard is like the thing that you have had on your mind for a really long time um is still there and you do still want to talk about it but i just don't think apologies work when they come tied to but i'm still mad about this other thing like the apology just needs to stand on its own um and then you know, depending on how that goes, um, later you can have a conversation about something that this really uh, awoke in me as a realization that I want to deal with these feelings, um, a feeling like I'm not living up, or it's maybe bringing up some ways in which I feel like mom and dad have pitted us against each other or ways in which um, I've experienced pain um, about how I perceive you to be successful in a way that makes you look down on me. But again, that's just those conversations have to be real, real, real separate. Um, and this is probably going to take time. I think the apology, um, however that goes, there will be afterwards just a bit of a settling down period that will probably be good for everybody. Yeah, exactly. And and I and I, I mean, maybe a letter is not the way to do it. Maybe maybe a telephone call to each if the conversations can be civil. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if things keep spiraling into. Uh, and sort of accelerating into into mayhem, then that won't work. Um, then a letter is calm. You know, it's just a way of making sure to be you're, you're able to say what you want to say without being stopped or interrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree. And and but the one thing that would be good about the phone if it could work is that there it might be interesting to hear what would I mean if if the acrimony could be dispensed with mm. what the letter writer sisters would say, because my guess is that they feel very insecure next to her. You know, she's in from their point of view, she's got it all. And my guess is that the little digs about not being a quote unquote real doctor are probably arising directly from that. Yeah. And, you know, it would be nice to it just feels like everyone is so wounded. It would be so nice if if these sisters could give each other love and support. It would yeah. be wonderful. Yeah. And I think just when you have that conversation, you know, start with the sister who's left the messages demanding the apology um, and, and just set aside everything else. You know, there will be time for that later. But right now you do need to, to deal with what you said um, and that you said in front of an acquaintance. You know, you said that in front of somebody else. That's that's painful. That. You know, again, that doesn't mean if she said really terrible, cruel things to you in those messages that that makes it okay. Um, But that that is the thing. And to just open with, I'm calling because I need to apologize or not. Sorry, not need to because that like puts it. uh, But like I'm calling because I want to apologize. You were right to ask for an apology. And and I want to offer you one. I'm really sorry. Um, And again, that does not mean that if her response is just to unleash a torrent of criticism that you have to sit there and totally absorb it. But I think go in with the goal of. I want to offer a full and unqualified apology. I want to be available to listen. If things get really, really heated or her answer is just, nope, I just want to yell at you, I want to be able to say, I need to end this phone call. I don't think we're going to get anywhere with this. Um, Let's try again later so that you're not just like endlessly putting on a hair shirt or saying, now we'll just say all the worst things we can think of about each other. Because that's the hard thing about siblings, right, is you know each other pretty well. Um, you know the things that come from childhood that cut really deep. So the ability to wound each other is pretty big. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think you're right. I think there's probably be prepared for a certain amount, a certain amount of, you know, 
um, venting. Mm -hmm. But then there really comes a point where but I would make sure to end on the note of saying, look, I'm I I can't listen to this anymore. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're heading down a road that's not productive. But I just want to say again that I'm really sorry. And I want to leave you with that thought because that's that's the reason I called. Yes. So that it doesn't go completely off the rails into something else. Yep. And then the ball is in the other court. Yeah. And then after that, you know, let let a little time pass. Think through, you know, go see that therapist. Think through what are things that feel really important to me to talk about? What what help can I get in terms of how I want to bring things up with my family? Um, And even if the apologies go well, you may just feel like I actually want to have more of an arm's length relationship for a little while. That's okay too. This apology does not mean you have to um, say you've never done anything wrong. I've always been the sensitive one with the problem. You're you're simply acknowledging that what you did was not okay. That's all you're doing. Um, and then you can take a little time to process some of the other dynamics and figure out if there may later be a way um, to talk a little bit more in depth about it. I agree. And and it might even also be possible to say a little more than that, depending on how comfortable it is. You know, I really love you. I don't I the last thing I want is to hurt you. Mm-hmm. You know, my goal is to is to make your life better. And I, I, I want us to be close. Now, obviously, only the letter writer can determine how comfortable that is or whether it's even necessarily true. Right. But if it is true, you know, a person it, it's again rare that people just come out and say these things to each other. It can be really hard to do, but it's it's amazing <laughs> um, and potentially very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, you know, I, I hope that that goes well. I, I hope that that apology is meaningful and um, can help your sisters heal and help you heal and that you guys are able to figure out different ways to talk to one another about how you feel. Amen. All right. I feel like this next letter is sort of like um, the past, in some ways, the past version of this or like this is these are some people who are maybe their parents are setting them up for a future where this is the kind of conversation they have when they're visiting one another. Um, Because, man, the, the parental dynamics in this one are just really painful. Yeah, exactly. The subject line is Invisible Girl. Dear Prudence, I am a college student who barely visits home. My mother keeps begging me to come home. And the rest of my family wants to know why. The reason is that I feel like the fledgling that got pushed out of the nest early while my younger brother is the baby my mother adores. He's on the autism spectrum and has difficulty in school. My mother is his fiercest protector and champion. I was the, quote, lucky one. So I was basically invisible. I felt I had to take care of my family after my father left, and my mother mostly only spoke to me to assign me chores. My brother threw tantrums, destroyed my things deliberately and maliciously, quote-unquote playfully, pinched me, and threw my library books in the creek. My roommates in college dragged me to health services, where I got some professional help. The last time I went home, my brother had been suspended from school for the second time for fighting. My mother told me to clean the whole house while he played video games. I ignored her and went out to see friends instead. Before I left, my brother came up behind me and pinched me. I turned around and punched him twice in the shoulder. I told him I would do that every time he tried to touch me again. Getting home, my mother was there to yell at me and lecture me. I haven't gone home since. 
I talk with my mother on the phone, and I am closer to her side of the family, but I don't know what good it will be, to be honest. I still miss my mom so much sometimes I find myself crying for no reason. What should I do? Oh, man. Uh, Painful. Yeah, a lot here, too. I, I, I will say one thing that I think this letter writer has done correctly, um, even though it's really painful, is say, right now, I can't go home. Um in part because of the way that your mother um, treats you and has treated you and has not intervened when your brother has uh, hurt you. Um, And also because you recognize that you can't be in a situation where you're punching him, Um, that that's not that's not um, the right response. That's not going to be safe for him. That's not going to be safe for you. That's not the future that you want for your life. So I just want to say, you know, good on you for realizing I can't be here. And good on you for following your roommate's advice and possibly dragging um, and going to health services, because that is also an incredibly positive step. Yeah. And, and I wish that that just made things feel better. It, it, You know, I think implicit in this letter is that sort of sense of like, yeah, that sort of helped, but I still cry all the time. Um, and I, I just that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, I wish I wish that it didn't. but. This is a situation where it makes sense that you're crying a lot. This is very, very sad. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong right now. It just means that you are grieving the loss of um, feeling like my mom's going to look out for me. I mean, it seems to me, I mean, first of all, I think this is a, a dynamic that ha- that emerges very often in families where one sibling has some kind of health issue, either mental or physical, that requires a lot of attention from the parents. And it, it sounds like this is a household without a father. So that, you know, this is a mother who's got a lot on her plate, too. But one thing that really comes through to me is the letter writer is crying and missing her mom. And in the second sentence of the letter, my mom keeps begging me to come home. So there's a lot of love and desire for togetherness, both on the side of the letter writer and on the side of her mother, which I think is really positive. And the question is, how can that be parlayed into a more a deeper understanding of each other? Right, because um, I, I think you're right that there's there are feelings of affection there. But one thing that that's not being translated into is is the mom kind of looking out for her. Um, and also uh, an ability to honestly communicate what's going on. Um, uh, part of what I, I, I'm concerned about is, like, when the mother keeps begging this letter writer to come home, is it because she wants to see her, or is it because she wants um, someone to clean the whole house? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know to what extent that that's always the dynamic, but, you know, she does say that, um, after my father left, my mother mostly only spoke to me to assign me chores. So I don't know that this is a sort of case of I want you home because I miss talking to you and having a relationship so much as um, you are my unpaid assistant and I don't have the resources I need to care for my son um, and I need you to do those services. Um, which, again, I, I, I can really appreciate that the mom is in a really difficult situation but that does not mean that the letter writer's job is to um, just be there to be a sort of um, uh, housekeeper um, who doesn't have needs or feelings. And so as long as those are the conditions under which the mother wants her to visit, I think she needs 
to to say to her mom, you know, when I'm home, and this has been true ever since dad left, um, you assign me chores um, and you pay all of this attention to my brother. And I, I understand that he has a lot of needs that are not easy to fulfill um, and that that's been really hard on you. But that's been really hard on me, too. Um, and especially when I don't feel physically safe uh, around him and I know that I can't rely on you um, for help with that. That's not a position I can put myself in. Um, that I think that's a really fair line to draw um, and to say, you know, as long as, you know, I, I, I did not I don't want it. I don't want to be in a relationship where I, I tell my brother I'm going to hit him. Like, that's not how I want to behave. That's not how I want to treat him or anyone. And so I can't safely be in this house as long as that's going to be the dynamic. Um, and to have that conversation with your mother honestly um, and not to say, you know, you're just a lousy mom. You're just doing this for fun. I know that your mom is going through a lot, but to just say that's a limit that I have to have. So if you want to have phone calls or if you want to meet for lunch um, or run an errand together outside of the house, I might be available for that. But as for visiting home, that's off the table. Yeah. And I think one thing that um, a therapist told me once that I thought that has really stayed with me is that it can be very that it's there's a a difference between accusing someone of something and telling them how you feel. Mm -hmm. And one way to really avoid raising people's hackles and defensiveness, because it's very hard to hear, you know, that someone that that you're not a good mother, for example, um, is to focus on how you feel rather than what the other person is doing to make you feel that way. So I'm guessing that if her mother hears that she feels unloved, unappreciated, and unsafe, that that is really, you know, that's a, that's a kind of arresting thing for a mother to hear. But to try to make the emphasis on the way that she feels rather than what the mother is doing wrong. Yeah, I, 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 I do understand that. I feel like the reason that I'm a little bit more on the side of, of wanting to talk about the specifics is just because they are very specific actions. I actually had to edit this letter down a little bit, but the letter writer had initially said when I was uh, about 13 or 14, I actually kept a journal, like documenting, like in our first letter, of everything my mother said to me the whole week. Um, she said, I love you once, and everything else was telling me a chore to perform. Um, so it's just really clearly been a profound dynamic for a really long time. And I do think there may be some value in saying, um, again, maybe maybe that's not an anecdote to share with her mother right now, but maybe maybe it's something that she wants to think about saying, which is just that um, these are the only things that you say to me. Um, and so I, you know, I'm not saying that you don't love me or that you're not over, um, you know, overstretched and under-resourced, but this is what it looks like when I'm at home. And even though I love you and I miss you, you know, why would I want to be in a house where that's, you know, um, where my brother destroys my things, he pinches me, and my mother only tells me what to clean. Like, why would I want that? Um, and to be really honest about that, because it sounds like there's been um, some some minimizing, understandably, on the letter writer's part. And unless she can honestly say, here is why I do not visit home and why I will not visit home probably for a while, um, unless the situation changes dramatically, um, 
is because that's just what's that's real. That's reality. Does that make sense? I, I, I don't I don't think she should say, like, here's everything you've ever done wrong either. Um, but I do think it might be helpful to name a dynamic. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, get that extra bit of information is is useful. I mean, it makes me see how deeply entrenched this pattern is. Yeah, and how sorry, long I should have kept been. it. Um, but I, I guess, I guess what I'm really saying is that the more the letter writer can focus on things, on her feelings, mm-hmm. I love you, I miss you, I want us to be a whole family. Uh, you know, I guess I just, it, 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 but I feel these other ways, and I'm not saying. I mean, clearly, there's behavior that needs to be talked about. I mean, the brother's, um, you know, behavior toward her clearly has to stop. Um, But I guess I would just, you know, if the goal is to create, hopefully, um, a better relationship in the future, the more she can focus on her own feelings, I think the better chance she'll have of getting her mother out of a defensive posture and into a listening posture. Yeah. Uh, So I think the one thing that I really want to address the letter writer had said, which is just, I don't know what good it will do to be honest. And I totally get that in the sense of I can't promise you that that means anything will change. I can't promise you that your mother will agree with you. Uh, she may very well come back with, but your brother has, you know, these following needs and I've always done the best I can and it's not really that bad or, you know, any of those things may happen. Um, but I think you will at least feel less of a burden like it's my job simply to absorb all of these things and then make life easier for my mother. Um because it does seem like, in a lot of ways, that's been how you have seen yourself in the family, as somebody whose job it is to make your mom's life easier. Um, and that's not your job. You're her kid. Um, so I think it will I think it will do good if, if for no other reason than you will feel like you are not carrying around this big, overwhelming secret and having to come up with an excuse or a deflection um, when when she asks you why you're not coming home. Um, and And again, just to... Just to address it again, I'm very glad that you decided you can't go home again. Um, and I also understand that there's been a lot of ways in which your brother has treated you um, in ways that do not make it safe for you to be around him. So I don't want any way to say um, that those things aren't real and important. Um, but I also just, you know, really, really want you to know that part of this is just also about his safety. Like he's operating um, under a set of circumstances that are really different from yours. Um, and just as it's not your job to be um, a, a housekeeper for him to make his life great, it's also still not okay um, to to hurt him back because he has hurt you. Um, so, um, just just to really make sure that that is something that you're as aware of as you are about all these other dynamics, which is just um, it's not safe for him if you feel like the only way you can exist in the same house with him is if you have a policy of when you touch me, I hit you. Um, I don't want that for you. And I don't want that for him. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I also think when talking to her mother, you know, I think honesty is always, you know, as long as it's done with kindness mm-hmm. is always a good thing. Pretty much uh, rare that things go wrong because of that. Um, but I also think it it may not have immediate impact. I mean, the mother may initially react defensively. Right. She may be angry. Right. Um, you know, she has a she has a, a perspective from which, you know, this is, you know, th- this is what needs to be done. So help me do it. 
But I think down the road, you know, sometimes people hear more than you think they're hearing. Mm. Um, and I, and it may be that this is something that is going to take a while to, to get sorted out. But it is so important that, that, that she do her mother the service of explaining why she doesn't want to come home. Yeah. Yeah. And even if that does not immediately result in a great deal of change, um, you know, you will at least not feel like you have to lie to her every time you guys talk on the phone. Um, and that will be helpful as you continue to access like mental health services on campus and figure out, you know, where will I live uh, over the summers or after I graduate since home's not an option for me. Um, and I hope that eventually you're able to develop a different kind of relationship with your mother. Um, it, it may simply be that with your brother, um, civil distance is the most that you can hope for. I don't know what, what repair there might look like. Um, but, you know, hopefully you will be able to stay in your mother's life in some way. Um, but right now, what you need um, is distance, space, and time and safety. And you can't get that at home. Um, and the only way you can start to get that for yourself um, is if you take really good care of yourself and ask for help and support from the services available to you on campus and from your friends. Yeah. And congratulations on fi on finding friends who, you know, have your best interest in mind and mental health services that are giving you some clarity. I mean, that's people sometimes wait, you know, decades to find those things. So I feel like the letter writer has some very good instincts and is reaping the rewards of those, which is really wonderful. Yeah, I'm really, really glad you have friends who are looking out for you like that. That is just, I'm so happy to hear that. And um, I hope you can just lean on them um, in this. And, and just, yeah, when you cry, that makes a lot of sense. Be kind to yourself. Let yourself cry. Talk to a friend or a therapist about it. Um, that does not mean that you're doing anything wrong. That just means that you're grieving um, the pain of your current reality. Yeah. Man, I don't know if we landed at dreamy happiness today, but I do feel like we got somewhere kind of lovely um, and with at least some possibility for something different. And that, I think, is is meaningful. Absolutely. And the hope is that the love that exists amidst these conflicts and these entangled and enmeshed histories can can ultimately rise to the surface and, and carry the day, but it can take a while. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on this show. I can see why the city of New York loves you. Aw, um, <laughs> that's so this sweet. Was just wonderful. And I, I hope that um, you have a fabulous, fabulous rest of the day. I, I enjoyed this so much. I, I I feel like, well, wait, can't we do some more letters? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, maybe this will inspire you to, uh, I don't know, heal a stranger's life. Uh, as you as you walk out, somebody else may just be in need of uh, hope, hope or clarity or support, and you will be able to fix their problems. Nothing would make me happier. And maybe someday you can come back on the show and I can just pepper you with even more questions. And they'll all be about like, you know. Coworkers and dogs. No more fraught family stuff. Just some real. It's a standing good... offer. It's a standing offer. I would do it anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, come back soon. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. 
and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening.